5. This is God's word. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because... You did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these Days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. That far we read from God's word. There are two babies born in the Christmas story. Jesus, we know. Who's the other one? Uh, his name was John. He was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. John the Baptist, we call him. He told people that they needed to get ready for the coming of Christ. John brought people back to God. Who does that sound like, bringing people back to God? It sounds like the other baby of the Christmas story, and it should. That brings us to my whole main point here. The birth of John the Baptist foreshadowed the birth of Christ in order to bring sinners back to God. We'll see in verses 5 to 17, eagerly desiring the arrival of a child, Verses 18 to 22, humbly being corrected by the Lord. Verses 23 to 25, joyfully receiving God's gracious removal of disgrace. Verse 5, the first thing that our author Luke does is he tells us about an older couple, a husband and wife. If you remember from the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke, this is an introduction to some of the most important things that believers need to know about the origins of the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what he means. 
And he starts by telling us about an older couple, husband and wife. Husband's a priest. The context in which he's talking about, there's this evil king, king of of Judea, Herod. There's this priest. Uh, He had a a wife who's also a daughter of Aaron. They give her name. Verse 6, he next informs us the priest, Zechariah, his wife, Elizabeth, were both righteous before God. In the original, the word is blameless, and it's actually an adjective. Wait, stop, really? I mean, is this how the most important things about Jesus Christ and our redemption is really going to start off like this? Are you catching what's happening in verses 5, 6, and 7? There's something remote about the presentation. There's, there's something almost legendary in the way the tone is so far. Luke has informed us that it's for some of the most important things for us to know about Jesus. And the start, to, to be honest, it sounds like a fairy tale. I mean, verse 5 almost reads like, Once upon a time, there was an old couple, a man and his wife, and they were the nicest people you'd ever want to know. It almost has that feel to it, doesn't it? And yet it's fitting. Because Luke is about to reveal something that will stretch your beliefs. It will stretch your knowledge of what could even happen. And we as readers need to be introduced to something that is beyond us. By the end of these first two chapters, Luke will be expecting us as readers to actually believe that a birth took place from a virgin mother. How do you get somebody to start your book and from there to two chapters later, get them to believe that a virgin birth took place? So let's accept Luke's approach. It's genius, really, when you think about it, because what he's doing here for the Christmas story to begin this way is he's getting us to remember that we serve a God who could cause a barren womb, a long-time barren womb, to bear fruit, to have a child. And that's a step closer to getting us to consider that we serve a God that would be able to have a virgin womb also conceive. So this elderly Jewish couple is presented to us. And as you think about it, it's a paradigm. It's a presentation of the nation of Israel. See, this Jewish couple represent the true believing Israel within Israel. There'll be others. Take Mary, Simeon, Anna. Those within Israel who truly fear God, praying for the redemption of God's people through the coming Messiah. They belong to the generation that would, little did they know yet, actually see God's salvation, the Messiah himself in person, the person of Jesus Christ. So here we get in verse 7, our author Luke, a medical doctor, remember, informs us of the family status, the medical status, and the medical condition of Elizabeth. The couple had no child, he reports, and she was barren. Now, why did Luke tell us two things? Number one, the couple's righteous before God. We get that in verse 6. And number two, he tells us that they have no child and that she's barren. Why does he tell us both of those things? Why does he tell us those things in that order? Because it's important to be established 
that the barrenness of Elizabeth and therefore the childlessness of the couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth, was not the result of any sin found in the couple. That doesn't mean they're sinless. It just means that this barrenness itself is not a result, a direct result of sin. This, child's, this couple's childlessness was neither the result of sin, listen, nor was it the occasion of sin. Zachariah and Elizabeth were walking blamelessly before God in this situation. Now there's people who are righteous and yet are suffering. It happens in our lives, it happens through world history, it happens in the Old Testament and New Testament. People who are righteous and yet suffering, suffering illness, singleness, loneliness, unemployment, emotional wounds, loss, family stress, financial stress, mental illness in self, mental illness in a loved one, pressure from your employer, physical limitations, aging, and so on. Godly people can suffer. So that's already being introduced to us. But in addition... People who are godly can start to sin when they suffer. Suffering people can all of a sudden take on sins that they didn't have before the suffering came. You know, uh, for example, becoming grumpy, (laughs) becoming sour. It would never happen to anyone in this room, right? Never become grumpy, distant, complaining, unstable, irrational. Or any number of bad or unacceptable reactions are understandable, but still sinful and wrong before God. But what we're told in just three verses is that Luke has made it clear that's not the case with Zechariah and Elizabeth. We're not even told until verse 13 that this couple had been praying for a baby. But they were praying for a baby for themselves? It almost seems as if the way this is presented that they were actually praying for a savior for the nation to be born. And the good news that the angel is bringing is that the couple will soon bear a baby who will announce that savior's arrival. That they're interested in the salvation of the nation, and perhaps they did also, it does seem that they also prayed for a baby for themselves. But their prayer is double answered. In their waiting and in their suffering, they remain godly, we're told, which means that they're sweet and joyful, loving and kind, good attitudes toward God, each other, towards families who did have the blessing of children. They love God, they loved each other, love God's people, love the families around them. They loved other people's children. Zechariah and Elizabeth were regular sinners like you and me. This is not saying that they were sinless. I'm not saying that they were sinless. They received their righteousness by faith through the coming death and resurrection of Jesus, which was applied to them by the power of the Holy Spirit, just like everyone else who's a believer. And because they were united to Jesus in justification, they're also united to Jesus in sanctification, which means they received the status of being right before God, righteous before God, as we're told, as a gift a gift that extended more and more into their character and their behavior so that they were living out the righteousness that had been theirs as a gift. And that is exactly what's so fascinating about the lives of this couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth. They are already sinners inhabiting the justifying and sanctifying grace of God. They're already pointing ahead to Jesus with their very lives. 
And now, in addition to that, God in his sovereign wisdom chose this family to now point to Jesus in a new, very specific, special, and unique way. The godly womb that had been godly and barren would now be godly and fruitful. The family that had already pointed to Jesus in their character would now have a son who would be the heaven-picked pointer to Jesus. Zechariah and Elizabeth would have a son named John the Baptist whose role it is to point to Jesus. And since Zechariah and Elizabeth already pointed to Jesus through their godly character when they had no children, what do you suppose they did when they became parents of this boy? They would point the boy to Jesus, even as they pointed themselves and the nation to Jesus. They pointed their son, John the Baptist, to Jesus so much that it was ingrained into John the Baptist when he had a particular temptation that comes with those who serve the Lord to let people praise you instead of having people praise God, where John the Baptist famously said, he must increase, I must decrease. Did John learn that from his father, Zechariah? Think about that as we proceed. Verse 7, the phrase, both were advanced in years. It's funny, the verb is probino, which means to throw forward. So funny, the literal phrase here is, brought straight into English, would read, and they were both thrown forward in their days. If you're looking for a very polite way to say that someone is getting along, you say you're thrown forward in your days. You know the point, though, is how could they have children? Verse 8, Zechariah had duty as a priest. Verse 9, he entered the temple. Verse 10, the people were outside praying. Verse 11, an angel appeared to Zechariah. You know, this isn't a usual occasion. It doesn't just happen all the time. An angel appears to someone. This is shocking. This is surprising. An angel appeared to him in the temple. And the reason for the angel's visit is to bring good news. But in verse 12, his response is not like that. Zachariah's response is to be afraid. And I suppose if an angel appeared to any of us or appeared in this room right now, we would all have the response of fear initially. It does seem to be the common reaction throughout Scripture. When an angel comes, people are fearful. And yet, in this story, there seems to be more to it. Verse 13, the angel said that the couple would have a baby boy and they should name him John, and John would announce the arrival of Jesus. And in verse 14, the reason for the angel's visit is again shown to bring good news. And the response that's proper for Zechariah was to be not fear, but joy. Joy and gladness, in fact, are literally listed in verse 14. He's telling him how to react. And in fact, many others will also rejoice at his birth. This is absolutely stellar news. This is fantastic news, says the angel to Zechariah. Why? Because it's not just any baby. He will be great before the Lord. He has a special place in redemptive history. And his calling, per verse 15, in the same Old Testament tradition of the Nazarite vow, must not drink wine because he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. And it shows that he would be a prophet and a very special prophet at that. 
the Spirit was given for bringing God's word. So God is on the move in the nation. And God is bringing the people back to himself and the angel's appearance to Zechariah in the temple while he's on duty is the very first inbreaking, the very first sign anywhere that God was taking action. God would soon bring his wandering people back to himself through this Messiah, but first, this John the Baptist must be born so he could announce it. Verse 16, with the Spirit and the Word, what will happen? John will serve to turn others back to God, a Greek word, epistrepho, turn people back to God. This word is used to express the idea of turning people back to God elsewhere in the New Testament and especially in Luke's writing, both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Many times this same verb is used, turning back to God, turning back to God is a theme for Luke. In verse 17, there's a comparison of John the Baptist and the ancient prophet Elijah. All of this, we're told, is making the people prepared for the Lord. What, what is this task of turning someone back to God? Well, it's not a physical task. We could go out and collect people, handcuff them, bring them here, sit them in the seats, and they would be in the worship service. We could physically turn people back to God, as it were. They're in worship, plunk them down here, have them stand when we stand and sit when we sit and open the hymnal and open the Bible. But that doesn't do it, you see. You know that. So it's not a physical task of bringing people back to God. What is this task of bringing someone back to God? It's a prophetic task. It's a task of word and spirit. It's a task to convert someone from sin or idolatry to loving and serving God. Prophet Malachi puts it this way in chapter 2, 6. It's a task of a true priest to turn many from sin back to God. This connection with Elijah fits right in. In 1 Kings 18, the prophet Elijah saw it as his task to challenge people to come back to their God. When King Ahab assembled all the different prophets on Mount Carmel, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And we're told that Elijah required, uh, sorry, repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Why? Because the altar is how people return to their God. They need to come to God through the altar, bringing an animal and the blood of that animal, the goats and lambs, is the sacrifice that represents their need to get right with God, that their blood can't be spilled or they die, the blood of another, which points to the blood of the coming lamb. That's how they turn back to God, by the blood of the lamb, the coming lamb of Jesus represented. That's the whole work of Elijah the prophet. It's the work of turning erring people Sending people back to the one true and living God. And what we're told by the angel here is that John the Baptist would speak in the power and spirit of Elijah. He'd do the same thing. We turn people from ignorance to knowledge, from carelessness to thoughtfulness, from sinfulness to godwardness, from running away from God to running toward God. It's turning them around. It's the word for repentance. It's the gospel message. It's what... Churches do and missionaries do. We help people get ready for the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. We're filled with the Holy Spirit to bring people back to God, and he's the only hope for mankind. We move ahead to verses 18 to 22, and our second point, humbly being corrected by the Lord. Consider how Zechariah, in verse 18, it seems, talks back to the angel in unbelief. Now, if you're ever put in the situation of having an angel come and speak to you, I can't recommend you do, what Zechariah did here, we, we could understate it and say he bumbled this. 
right? He says, I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. Did Zechariah forget everything? Did he forget what God had done before and can do? Did he forget about other Bible characters? Consider Isaac, Samson, Samuel. Though a strong believer and a righteous man, we're told, Zechariah found himself limited by his human reasoning. It's not possible, Mr. Angel, sir. I'm old. My wife is advanced in years. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's not possible is where his head is, right? It's not possible. Really? You want to say that to the angel of God? Was it possible? For Elizabeth, an old and barren woman, to conceive and give birth to a child, medically, might line up with Zechariah. No way. Is it possible for God? Well, do we have a powerful God or do we not? Of course it's possible for God. Take yourself back to the first human. Create a clay human. All right, looks good so far, but there's no life there. God would have to breathe life into a clay human. Take the second human. Take a rib from one, make another. Okay, you have a rib. <laughs> How do you do the rest of it and actually turn it into a human being? If God is able to do that, it's really not a stretch for him to take a barren woman and make it pregnant and to make a virgin woman and make it pregnant. But Zechariah's mind wasn't there. Very quickly, our story turns. Verse 19, the angel scolds our godly priest, Zechariah. The angel identifies himself as the angel Gabriel, no less. What does that mean? It means that he serves in the presence of the living God as his job. Not in the outskirts of heaven somewhere. He's right in the presence of the throne room of God, that Gabriel. That's all the access we have. We have no idea how heaven is structured beyond these sorts of little glimpses. And so he says, I am Gabriel. God himself sent me to speak to you, not another person, not anybody, but you. I came to say to you what God says to you. That's where we are. And I have a good news message for you. And you're saying, I'm not so sure this can happen. So in verse 20 is a chastisement given Zechariah would be unable to speak until the time when it comes true. The baby is born. Why? Verse 20, the angel lists exactly why. Because you did not believe my words. Not about the angel. The angel is simply a messenger of God. It's the same as not believing God's words. You didn't believe God. What kind of priest are you that you didn't believe God? Meanwhile, back at the ranch, outside the temple, verse 21, we're taken back to outside the temple here now by Luke, where people were waiting and waiting and wondering and wondering, what's taking Zechariah so long in the temple? Verse 22, Zechariah finally came out, not able to speak. Hey, what happened in the temple? No words. He's, he's going like this, and I'm trying to show, like he's motioning to them. Like, this is, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Just tell us. Finally, they understood something had happened in there, which caused him not to be able to speak. Verse 23 just tells us he went home. We're moving on. Our third point, verses 24 to 25, joyfully receiving God's gracious removal of disgrace. Now you have to know in the ancient world when a woman could not conceive, it was a disgrace for her. There was kind of a given assumption that there's something wrong, something going on with her walk with God, that she was not given the blessing of having children. So there was a 
an aura, a kind of sense of public social disgrace on her. But in addition, we now have disgrace on our priest, Zachariah. So they both have disgrace on them. But God has a way of clearing disgrace for Elizabeth to have a baby. And so she conceived the normal way. Verses 24 and 25 show, because there's a reproach on Elizabeth and the reproach on Zechariah and an approach on all the people of Israel, sinners need a savior. She begins to rejoice at the side benefit that comes from the one who would announce the coming of Jesus. She already gets her disgrace graciously removed. It's a picture of what John the Baptist would announce for all the people. Turn from your sins, he would say. The preacher of repentance That is a picture, then, of what Jesus would do, actually do, to remove our disgrace. What all the bloods of of bulls and goats could never do. What all the announcements and sermons of John the Baptist could never do, Jesus could actually do to remove our disgrace. And Luke's writing this to remind us as readers, as we approach the news that's yet to come in our Christmas story, the news that Luke is about to share about another birth, He's already warning us. He's already reminding us, don't fall into the error of Zechariah. Ooh, what's the error of Zechariah? To not believe. Is it possible that God took on human flesh and that the God-man is here and our Savior in the coming at Christmas? I think we, we keep praying, Lord, increase our faith. Increase my faith that I won't fall into the error of Zechariah because it's likely I'm no better than Zechariah. Lord, help me to stay on the path where I believe. If you say it, I believe it. Stand on your promises. You, you save all who come to you in faith. You hear and answer prayer. You never leave us, never forsake us. You're going to send a Messiah. And if he comes, let us be ready to accept that news. And we mess it all up and we don't believe the right things at the right time and the right way and the Lord removes our disgrace and our reproach. And he removed the disgrace of Zechariah, put him back to service. He removed the disgrace of Elizabeth, gave her a baby. And he removes our disgrace, the disgrace of sin, only by the coming, the birth, suffering and death, resurrection, ministry, ascension glorification of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news that brings the great joy. I have two conclusions if we could try to take this incredible story and apply it just to immediately our lives this week. Number one, a Christmas reflection for believers who are advanced in years. (laughs) Your years have been thrown ahead of you. It was an old age that Zachariah and Elizabeth began the task of parenting. Imagine that. (laughs) To raise a little boy named John the Baptist. Hadn't even been conceived yet. Hadn't even been born yet. And they've got that work ahead of them. And what a job they must have done as parents. He was one of the finest human beings on earth. It's a whole other sermon. It's been said that it's rare for a person to start out life well. Rarer still for a person to run the race of life well. And the rarest of all is to finish well. So the uh, post-retirement years, if I could speak to you... (laughs) They can be some of the most fruitful time in a Christian's whole life. It's not over. Oh, no way that it's over. 
other people are watching us, we have the opportunity to pray and to serve. We are living pointers to Jesus, like Zechariah, like Elizabeth, like John the Baptist himself. And that's the kind of persons God's calling us to be to the very end. It's unknown just how much influence we have on the next generation and on the generation after the next generation. Look at the phrase again in verse 6. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. People talk about retirement plans, retirement goals. It kind of irks me. What they should be saying is something along the lines of verse 6. May this be our goal in our retirement years, to live more and more of a holy life. I give you a hint, as long as I'm talking to those who are thrown ahead in your years. Read on. Watch for others within the Christmas story who are advanced in years. The Christmas story is not just for the young and those having babies and those raising kids. Christmas we think of in our culture as just for kids. No, no, no. Actually, it's the other way around. We wonder sometimes whether insights are only given to those who have been thrust forward in years. <laughs> it's things we learn after a long time with God on the planet. Christmas reflection for believers advanced in years. And second and last application, one gift of Christmas that we often lose sight of is that God takes away our disgrace. Integral to the story of Christmas. It's right on point to remember that God removes our sin. He removes our disgrace. I just point, you know, straight up ask you, you ever do something dumb? <laughs> I mean, we're talking about Zachariah. He started out as our glowing hero, and then he talks back to an angel. That's like front page dumb, right? And instead of us being so prideful, say, we would never do what Zachariah did. That was super dumb. Pretty dumb. I bet you'd done dumb things that bring disgrace on yourself. Maybe you didn't do something as dumb as talking back to an angel who came from the very presence of God. Okay, I'll grant you that. You didn't do that one. But you notice in our story, we stopped exalting Zechariah. It's on purpose. You, you fast forward the story, you get to their son. Their son actually becomes great. The angel said before he was even conceived, he's going to be a great one. Okay. So here he comes, and he is great. He starts turning the country around. The people start exalting their son, John the Baptist. And he famously says, Christ must increase, I must decrease. He won't let them exalt him. Let's say John learned that from his father. At some point, we stop talking about John the Baptist. At some point, we stop talking about David, talk only about the son of David. At some point, we stop talking about Aaron, who's mentioned in our passage and we only talk about the great high priest. At some point, we stop talking about Moses, and we start talking about the one who was like Moses who came later. It's the consistent message of the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament apostles, that God takes away our disgrace. And it's only done when the one who came at the first Christmas came. No one else matters. Let me say it this way. In the story of Christmas, where are you? If you read our passage tonight, you hear this message tonight, you think, well, I'm the righteous Zechariah. I'm the righteous Elizabeth. Stop. No, that's not your role. We're only Zechariah in the extent that we did something dumb and embarrassed ourselves. In the Christmas story, our role is the disgraced ones who need rescue. 
Paul says it this way to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. You notice he stopped talking about Timothy? Stop talking about Paul? He's only talking about Jesus. He was just a sinner named Saul that God's spirit turned into Paul. But even Paul we stopped talking about. Every missionary saved by grace. We don't talk about the missionaries. We don't talk about the reformers, the highly respected authors for just a little bit to get things going and we end up talking about Jesus. It's the core message of Christmas. We say Jesus came to remove our disgrace precisely because our failings needed cleansing and we simply become showcases for his cleansing ability. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul wrote, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 to 7. That's the whole point of Christmas. The gift of our disgrace being graciously removed. Don't miss it. Let's pray. Father, we've done dumb stuff. We have disgraced ourselves. We deserve